0: The telegraph. the telegraph Podcasts I'm Francis Durnley and this is Ukraine the latest Today it's a bank holiday in the United Kingdom so we're away from telegraph towers but before we resume our usual updates tomorrow Last week, I recorded an exclusive face-to-face interview with retired Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, former Commanding General, United States Army Europe. He was visiting London for a major defence conference. One of the world's leading military commentators on the war in Ukraine, we discuss why he's so optimistic Crimea can be retaken by Ukrainian forces, how the West can win the logistical war, and the short- and long-term foreign policy mistakes that made the conflict possible, and what needs to be done now to ensure Russia is defeated. This is our conversation.
1: Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory.
0: This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Thank you for your time today and for joining us at Telegraph Towers. Many listeners will be familiar with your background and insights on the war, including for us. But for those who aren't, perhaps you can start by providing a brief overview of your career.
1: Thank you. Um, Lieutenant General Retired Ben Hodges, served 38 years in the U.S. Army. My my last two jobs in the Army were as NATO Allied Land Command in Izmir, Turkey from 2012 to 2014, and then Commander of U.S. Army Europe in uh, Wiesbaden, Germany, 2014 to 2017 retired January of 2018 and have worked since then at a think tank based in the U.S. i do some consulting. But today I am senior advisor for Human Rights First. I'm senior mentor for NATO logistics. And I would say just about every waking hour over the last year, I've spent my time focused on U.S. Europe, U.S. NATO and
0: support for Ukraine. Wonderful. And To start, you've been consistent in your view that this war will prove disastrous for Russia. Can you briefly explain the concept of center of gravity and suggest where you see Russia's military center of gravity at this present moment and political center of gravity?
1: So, of course, the concept of center of gravity was introduced to the military world by Clausewitz when he talks about it's this thing, whether it could be a tangible thing, such as a land force or your Navy, or it could be popular support, or it could be industrial power, but it's the thing that gives one side its power. And so, obviously, part of the reason he identified that was so that if you're fighting someone, you want to go after their center of gravity, either directly or indirectly, so that it cannot be powerful. For Russia, they center of gravity, and the one advantage that they still have is mass. Mass infantry, mass artillery, and a willingness to spend it. I mean, they clearly don't care how many of their own people they lose, but that's not Putin. It's, it's always been that way. As long as they have mass, they think they still have a chance to win. And I think from a political standpoint, their center of gravity, of course, is Vladimir Putin. Um, he is a 100% total autocrat, I can't tell who influences him anymore, his information, how secluded is he or how insulated is he, you know, how does he make his decisions? But I think as long as he thinks there is hope that Russia can win, which really means that Western support for Ukraine dries up, I think he will keep doing this because of his willingness to use mass. I think when he realizes they've lost and that they are going to lose, that they're going to lose all of Ukraine then I think his number one priority will be you know, saving his own skin and trying to stay in power. So he'll do something else.
0: What do you think that something else could be?
1: I think it is not going to be use, use of a nuclear weapon. I think it is going to be change the narrative, explain why they no longer have to stay there. I mean, the Soviet Union, when they came out of Afghanistan, there was not a long period of reflection. There was no... Off-ramp strategy, they just decided we're leaving. President Xi just recently ended the most strict, oppressive COVID lockdown of any country in the world. He did it overnight without a lot of messaging. He just he made the decision. And so autocrats, when they need to, they will make a decision. And I think that's what is more likely than him blowing it all up because that is counter to everything we've seen about him and his instinct for survival.
0: We've seen a myriad of attacks inside Russia. Airfield strikes, rain line blasts, drone strike on the Kremlin, of course, most visually striking of all of them. Do you think that's unsettled, that aspect of his rule, or do you think it might have strengthened it?
1: I think it will make people, some people in some places begin to wonder, wait a minute, how were we vulnerable? You know, this was never part of the the equation. And it's hard to judge how Russians think about things, of course, because there is no Telegraph or BBC or Wall Street Journal or Washington Post or media that looks at things. So it's difficult to know what people really think. Last fall, when the Kremlin announced a partial mobilization because they needed more troops to fight in Ukraine, half a million military age males left the country rather than be mobilized. That right there gave lie to this mythology that Russians are willing to out the rest of us. I don't think you could fill up a room with the number of Russian troops that actually want to be in Ukraine. So when you think about attacks happening along the periphery, whatever the true story ends up being about Belgorod, for example, and I think we don't really fully know exactly who, what, and all that, or the drone strikes that are hitting airfields in the depth of Russia— I think it's a combination of deliberate action, but also opportunity. In a country like Russia, it's not monolithic in terms of all the people 100% loyal to the Kremlin. And I think there may be groups that are seriously willing to attempt some sort of chaos. That obviously helps the Ukrainian side. Do you think if things Get
0: worse that the Wagner group and men like Prigozhin could sow sort of a civil war type situation in Russia.
1: That's a great question. I think uh, Mr. Prigozhin, first of all, he doesn't take orders from the general staff. You know, he doesn't. He, his missions are not provided to him by General Gerasimov or Minister Shoigu. He's already announced that he's pulling all of his guys out of Bakhmut by around I think one June or so. So just around the corner. His business model is not based on sending troops into the meat grinder. His business model is based on controlling diamond mines, gold mines, rare earth materials that then gives him enormous wealth, some of which he provides back to the Kremlin, which is, I think, why he gets away with doing what he does and saying what he says. I think that guys like Prigozhin uh, or Mr. Kadyrov, the Chechen leader, I think they're waiting to see how's this going to play out? They want to make sure that they are uh, protected themselves and that they're in on the kill if there is a regime change of some sort. Or maybe they want to be seen as the savior, the one that Putin turns to in the darkest moment, and they save him from whatever else is out there. One of the reasons I am so optimistic about Ukraine's chances is because of how the Russian general staff, the Russian military leadership, how they hate each other. I mean, the the friction at the top levels is the whole world sees it. And, of course, in that kind of a culture, each of them has their own sort of legions of of followers, if you will, people that are loyal to this commander, that commander. And so that tribal— Like ancient Rome. Very much.
0: And that was bad. That's a good (laughs) analogy.
1: That trickles, that hatred will trickle down to the colonels and the and the younger officers and the troops, if you will. So one of the things that's most important, we know from thousands of years of history, is that soldiers trust each other. They're not fighting for the flag, they're fighting for their unit. and they're fighting, and they have confidence, even if they don't like their commander, they're confident that their commander is doing everything possible to give them what they need to succeed and survive. This kind of incoherence, And friction inside the leadership has a debilitating effect on the combat fighting strength, fighting power of these units. And fortunately, it also ensures
0: there will not be a coherent defensive strategy by the Russians. Now, you believe Crimea holds the key for Ukraine's victory and Russia's defeat. But you believe that a withdrawal of Russian forces can be achieved without a land invasion. Can you just articulate for our listeners what that strategy entails? So, of course, when you look at a map, and I'm, I don't mean to insult
1: anybody's intelligence or knowledge of geography, but unless you stare at the Black Sea region, you may not be familiar with the, the real geography of the Crimean Peninsula and where it sits and how it dominates most of the Black Sea. I mean, it's the reason Catherine the Great took it the first time at the end of the 18th century because of what it gave, not just a port, a warm water port, but ability to dominate the entire Black Sea. And so it's hard to imagine a positive outcome for Ukraine or for anybody else if Russia retains control of Crimea. Crimea is like a dagger into the belly of Ukraine as long as you've got the Russian Navy, Air Force, Army, all that stuff sitting there that can, even two or three years after a negotiated settlement, they know we'll lose interest and they'll be back. And then from an economic standpoint, Ukraine's four main ports are either blocked or can be disrupted by Russian forces in Crimea. So there's no hope for uh, rebuilding the this export economy of Ukraine. So that's why I think the Ukrainians realize they have to liberate Crimea. You could kill every Russian soldier within 100 miles of Bakhmut. That would not change the strategic situation. But you liberate Crimea, that changes everything. So that's why I think they're offensive when it comes Its ultimate objective is to isolate the Crimean Peninsula. So to go towards Sea of Azov, I don't know this. This is my own speculation, but that's what I would do. Cut that land bridge, secure Zaporizhia so we don't have a nuclear catastrophe there, but begin the isolation of the Crimean Peninsula, bring up more long-range weapons, and make the Crimean Peninsula untenable for Russian forces. So when you start putting precision weapons against ships and harbor facilities in Sevastopol, the Black Sea Fleet can't just sit there. They would have to reposition. And Novorossiysk is really the only other viable option that they have. And it will not have the same capacity for keeping the Black Sea Fleet fueled, maintained, and armed. Same thing with Russian air bases and logistics hubs there in Saki and Jankoi and places like that. So that's the key. Get in position so that you can start making Crimea untenable for Russian forces. At some point, Ukrainian ground forces will have to enter the peninsula. That will be a challenge. I mean, there's only the narrow Perekop isthmus, but I would not assume that the Ukrainians don't know their own geography, that they have not thought long and hard about ways that they would get onto the peninsula. I just think, and obviously part of this is what I want to happen, but I have some experience, and I believe that um, once they have achieved penetration of Russian defenses, these things start picking up momentum. And once you start raining down precision weapons on critical Russian facilities in Crimea, I think you're going to see the world's biggest traffic jam going over the Kerch Bridge, people trying to get out of there, which is why, by the way, I think the Ukrainians will not attack that bridge again, because
0: they want people to leave. Staying on that subject of precision strikes, how impactful against HIMARS and other precision strike capabilities are Russian electronic warfare efforts? And how can that be mitigated? There does seem to be some evidence they've had more success recently.
1: Yes, there are reports of Russia being able to jam the GPS, but we shouldn't be surprised by that. I mean, this is the history of warfare, that as soon as somebody gets a capability, the other side has to counter it, either to stop it or, or defeat it somehow. And the Russians, despite all their problems here, as we've seen over the last year and a half, have always had very good, capable electronic warfare capabilities. So, um, the Ukrainians, in my view, are unsurpassed in the world when it comes to technical adaptation, ingenuity, and also just being clever. And I think they will figure out ways to achieve the effects that HIMARS launcher can deliver with the right now the GMLRS rocket and other systems, they'll figure this out.
0: Moving on with to drones. Now, do you think drones should be considered as ammunition rather than equipment? And What impact will that have on military structures, training, integration?
1: I can almost envision that one day in the very near future, we will begin to look at some drones as as hand grenades. I mean, you just, you use them. I mean, the, the more and more you have, the cheaper they become. You have different capabilities. And so as both sides also improve their ability to counter drones, you end up resorting to different types, but also quantity so that some will get through to be able to either, whether it's provide intelligence or targeting or strike. So some things, of course, like an MQ-9 Reaper, that's not one you want to fire and forget. (laughs) You know, that's that's a different sort of drone, and, and there are so many different types and capabilities, but I can see a large portion of them being exactly as you suggest, basically a round of ammunition.
0: You just want to spend it on the right place. Now, in a sense, we're talking about logistics here, and you serve, as you say, as a NATO senior mentor for logistics. You recently posted online an interesting article about how US logistic flows to Ukraine have increased 30% since the full-scale invasion as old Cold War lessons are relearned. Putin often says everything new is the forgotten old. What other Cold War forgotten olds are now being relearned and we still need to relearn?
1: Transport, first and foremost,
0: we have
1: moved too much to rely on commercially available transport capabilities, whether it's ships or aircraft or heavy equipment transports for moving tanks, for example. There's not enough of that. And so when you get back to the scale of operations that we're seeing now, you quickly exceed your own capacity for transport and you start looking. Now we're all competing for the same commercial rail, for example, uh, DB Deutsche Bahn and DB Cargo has only enough capacity to move about one and a half armored brigades simultaneously. That's total. Well, you know, there'll be a lot of U.S., British, German, Dutch armored brigades moving around when we have a real crisis. And so we're having to figure out how do you improve military mobility. Being able to cross borders, being able to transport ammunition cross borders, and being able to move a lot of heavy equipment as fast or faster than Russian forces could ever move towards, say, Estonia or the Suwalki Corridor. That's a big part of this, is what we call military mobility. The second thing, of course, that all of us have been looking at is ammunition production. It's understandable why we tailed off so much, because we weren't using it. I mean... I think Ukrainians probably use more artillery ammunition in a month now than we did in 20 years in Afghanistan. It's, it's just a completely different war. So the ministries, the departments, have to increase the demand signal. Uh, defense industry, best in the world that we have in the West, but these are not charities. They have tens of thousands of employees, and they have very complex supply chains. And so political will is demonstrated in the form of investment to the different companies that make whatever it is, whether it's uh, rockets, Patriot interceptors, or artillery ammunition. So uh, this is an area. But it's actually not as hard as it may have felt like a few months ago. The U.S. was producing 8,000 rounds of 155-millimeter artillery ammunition per month before last year because that's what we needed per month for training. That was the amount that we had, and to maintain our stocks that we thought we needed, it's already up to twenty five thousand rounds a year. So that's in the first year, and of course that's still woefully short of what's needed. But it, that showed me, like, well, in a relatively short amount of time, the Department of Defense puts money on it, magically it starts happening. The long pole in this tent is going to be the explosives that all of us are competing for. So. EU says they're going to produce a million rounds. Okay, but everybody, there's still only limited amounts of explosives. So that industry
0: is going to have to increase also. I take from that then that you think in this broader question about who can win this logistical, attritional war, that you're far more upbeat than some about Ukraine's chances against Russia and the great Russian bear.
1: So Russia's having to import drones from Iran. I mean, that's Quite a statement, in my view, or an indicator, maybe, is a better way to say it. Uh, The Russian logistical system was never intended to support sustained land operations outside of Russia. So everything they're doing now, they're having to create from scratch. Uh, They're dragging tanks out of storage that are about my age. So I think that they are really suffering. Whereas Ukraine is being supported by 50 different nations, with the U.K. in the very front of that grouping. And Germany, by the way, number two, in terms of overall contributions of equipment, ammunition and financial resources. I, I guarantee you that's not one that the Kremlin was counting on, that to see Germany as the overall number two contributor. That article that you reference, you know that got my attention because here, once we get going, and you get the organization right, and then you figure out, you know the, with the ingenuity of how can you make things go faster? And a lot of the—and I don't mean this in a negative way, but a lot of the normal peacetime sort of bureaucratic things fall by the wayside. We start moving fast. I was talking to a a couple of officers who visited the base down in uh, Zhezhov in Poland a few months ago, and they said they had never seen anything like it in their life. They said this is something that only Western militaries could do. The scale of what was happening, trucks were coming in, they were being loaded up, and then they kept moving into Ukraine— on an industrial scale, and they said, you know, we we, we would see rockets, hand grenades, and first aid packets all on the same truck, but every truck moved out fully loaded. You, you could never do that, this officer said. You could never do that in my country. I said, you could never do that in the U.S. either, but because of what we're trying to do, they figured out how to do this safely and get maximum efficiency in the process. So that's why you see delivery rates going up, and it's also— Uh, And, Francis, this is another reason that I remain so optimistic. After, of course, nine years at war, nine years, and now 16 months since Russia escalated to their special military operation, they have not destroyed one single convoy or train bringing equipment and ammunition from Poland. Not one? How can that be? And obviously, you know, they, they failed to achieve air superiority despite having a massive advantage in numbers of aircraft, but having lots of aircraft does not equal a great air force. You know, it's the whole system of how do you achieve effects with your platforms, your systems, your capabilities requires a lot of training It requires a sort of a culture that they just don't have. So thankfully, they are still unable to interdict the lines of communication over which Ukraine's Equipment and ammunition flows from Poland. This is a testament to not only our abilities, but also to Ukrainian air defenders who depend a lot on what we are providing. But also it's a reflection on Russia's inability to do what the Royal Air Force would consider job one.
0: You're also a senior advisor to Human Rights First, as you mentioned. War crimes have been huge feature of our coverage on the podcast and, of course, a terrible feature of this conflict. Do you think the West has been robust enough and focused enough on what we've seen happening in Ukraine?
1: I remember seeing the day that Bundeskanzler Scholz and President Macron visited Ukraine their first time and they were taken to Bucha with President Zelensky and you could see their face is like, oh, my God. I think those guys were confronted then with the reality of who we're dealing with. And I think that changed attitudes. I mean, that really had a profound impact. You know, European leaders, we talk about our values, never again, you know, none of that. And here it's happening again. And I think this is part of what has given us resolve, why you still have 50 nations that are sticking together. Is it perfect? No. Is everything happening that needs to happen? No. But I think this has played an important role. And I think also, even though people may scoff and say, Putin is never going to go turn himself into the Hague, where the International Criminal Court is located, actually, his own people may turn him in the way the Serbs turned in Milosevic, but I'm not even counting on that. But this was a message by the world to Russia that you cannot act with impunity. And so pretty soon, I think we're going to start seeing indictments for people, enablers, who have their hands on this, who have carried out these illegal orders. And this is an important part of the messaging that, yes, you are going to be held accountable. On an individual level. Absolutely. In fact, we should see, I hope the Telegraph will run a story one day maybe and show, here's the guy in charge of all the uh, Air Force units that are launching cruise missiles against apartment buildings. Multi-million dollar precision weapons. Here's their faces. Oh, by the way, He has a flat in Belgravia, or maybe his yacht is down in uh, Italy somewhere, temporarily impounded. Let's start shining the light on who these guys are, who these people are. I just wrote an uh, opinion piece uh, last week, along with two former SACURs, General Breedlove and General Clark, to uh, encourage the U.S. Department of Defense to support the ICC's effort with collection of evidence. My country, France, Russia, and China are not signatories to the Rome Statute, which gives jurisdiction to the ICC. I hope that'll change because we need to live up to our own talking points for our credibility. UK does it. But in the meanwhile, we should still be able to help with collection of evidence. I think that's something that we should do. That will be just as important on bringing about a successful conclusion to this war as will delivery of endless amounts of
0: artillery ammunition. And... I suppose this bleeds into the next question. What mistakes were made that got us here? Could the West have prevented this invasion? Could it have prevented these war crimes if we'd acted more robustly in Syria, for instance? Should troops have been on the ground in Ukraine at Zelensky's invitation before the full-scale invasion? Some of these questions.
1: This war is what failed deterrence looks like. Our failure to act after Russia invaded Georgia in 2008 – Our failure to enforce a red line that President Obama imposed against Russia supporting the Assad regime and using chemical weapons against their own people, U.S., U.K., Germany, France, we did nothing. And then after Russia invaded uh, Crimea, Ukraine in 2014, and illegally annexed Crimea, we really did nothing. I mean, Germany continued building Nord Stream 1 up until the end of 2021. The Minsk process was toothless. There were no sanctions that changed anybody's behavior. And the United States, you know, we had our own internal problems, both with the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan, which as well as the January 6th catastrophe in the U.S. and and so our domestic problems. You can almost imagine the Kremlin saying they, they won't do anything again. They, the West, will not have the will to stand up. So, While they are 100% the guilty aggressor, I think they made a miscalculation that we would not do anything. And one could argue a logical calculation based on our previous. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they had good reason to think. So that's what I mean when I say this is what failed deterrence looks like. Now, to be fair, Ukraine should have been doing a lot more. I I was in Kiev early February last year. That city did not look like a place that was getting ready for a war. I mean, you could sort of feel it but it looked like normal normal life in Kiev. I visited the famous tank plant in uh, Kharkiv around 2017. I'd, I'm a history nerd. I always wanted to see this place, the birthplace of the T-34, and you can be sure they had a massive shrine to the T-34 there. They're very proud of it, and I watched them doing repairs on battle-damaged tanks and equipment, and they were very proud of what they had. And then I saw across the hall a row of brand-new tanks. I'm talking about... They had that new car smell, right? And I said, are those going to the ATO, the what was then called the ATO, the Anti-Terrorism Operations Zone, the Donbass, where we had this line of contact. And they said, no, 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 no. These are for export to Thailand, I think. I said, what? You're humping our leg for javelin, and you're exporting top-quality tanks to another country? And that gave me a really bad feeling that, like, come on. So— Ukraine today is not the Ukraine that it was six, seven years ago, for sure. But they could have been doing, they should have been doing more. Now, you go to Ukraine, I mean, the whole place is on a war footing. uh, Incredible resilience of the civilian population. They're growing in the army. They're still doing education and training, though, which I think is impressive. To make sure that the women and men who are in their uniforms will have the best chance to be successful and to survive. This is kind of what I imagine... Australia and New Zealand after Gallipoli they discovered a sense of being a nation because they're having to fight for their life and at enormous cost and I think they've earned so much moral support from much of the rest of the world as well.
0: I'm a historian by training what other historical parallels come to mind when you think of this war?
1: Well, of course, the one that's gotten the most publicity is uh, appeasement. This is what happens. I mean, when you're dealing with a, a bully like Russia, and this is who they've always been, by the way. I mean, from before Peter the Great, this is who they've always been. And we somehow were unwilling to accept that for different reasons. And the way you deal with a bully, of course, is you punch him right in the nose. And we've been reminded of that again and again and again. That's one thing. Uh, The second thing is you you have to look at the region, look at a map. We talk about Ukraine as if it's an island, but if you look at a map and you take the Black Sea and you put the Black Sea up into the middle of the map, you know, you start looking at Turkey in a completely different way. You start looking at the Republic of Georgia in a completely different way. You start thinking about the Danube River as something more than where our grandparents go do tours. It's looking strategically at this region. uh, We haven't done that certainly not in a long time.
0: Perhaps not since the Crimean War.
1: I was just thinking about that. (laughs) As I walked past that statue, that monument this morning, that's something that I think historically we should have been thinking more strategically about the greater Black Sea region. Uh, We would would not be uh, where we are. The final thing is I alluded to Afghanistan a little bit earlier. We were in Afghanistan for about 20 years, and we only had a clear strategic objective for the first year. After that, we never had a clear strategic objective. And you know, the United States fought, lost thousands of people in Vietnam. We never had a clear objective. And this happens when you don't have the civilian leadership, our elected officials to say, this is the outcome. This is what you've got to accomplish. Uh, that's not the role of the chief of the defense staff here. The CDS will give advice, but this is Civilian leadership has to say, this is what we want. Uh, My president, who has done a fantastic job, I think, in so many aspects of this, has failed to clearly identify what is the outcome he wants. And he also has stopped short of saying, we want Ukraine to win. We need Ukraine to win. I think this is a problem that uh, we're going to have to fix that. Otherwise, we'll continue with this incremental decision-making that actually
0: prolongs the conflict. Staying on America, what do you think the consequences could be of a Republican or a Donald Trump victory for Ukraine?
1: Fortunately for us, and also fortunately for Ukraine, the election is 18 months away. I mean, we're talking about November of 24 is the actual election. That's a lifetime in American politics. So a lot's going to happen between now and then. There's going to be a lot of fratricide going on on the Republican side, particularly between Governor DeSantis, who just announced, and uh, Mr. Trump. But even though President Biden has a very good economic record he can point to, he could say, we want Ukraine to win. And this whole thing could be over, literally, by the end of this year. I mean, instead of having to defend it during the campaign season next year, he could say, point to the W that's up on the wall, we won that one. And that would be powerful. But he's going to have to make the case why, you know, he should continue to be the president, not hope and assume that the Republicans will collapse. I am confident that the bipartisan support in the U.S. Congress is so strong for Ukraine right now that it's going to go well into the next year before we might see that faltering. Yes, there are a few loudmouths out on the extreme on both ends, but I think the support is very strong.
0: One final question. A lot of Western countries at the moment are reassessing their defense priorities. What is the greatest lesson that our military should take from Ukraine's experience?
1: Well, the price of failed deterrence is much more expensive than successful deterrence. I mean, thats it's hard to put a price tag on deterrence because you only know when it's failed, right? And so that's a hard sell to taxpayers if they don't understand and believe that there's a real threat. So again, our civilian leadership have got to explain to the voters why you have to do this, why you have to be ready. The military is not a business. I mean, if you if you ran an auto parts store, you don't want a lot of parts sitting on the shelf, right? You want it flying out of the truck to your customer so you don't have money tied up in inventory. The military is the opposite. You have to assume in combat there are going to be losses. You have to have resilience. You have to deal with all the uncertainties that Clausewitz warned us about in the nature of war, the uncertainty, the friction, the fog. So again, that's a hard sell. When people want to see their streets repaired, they want to see health services where they should be. You've got increasing numbers of pensioners in everybody's country as we all live longer. But I mean, <laughs> that's what you have to get from our elected officials.
0: Any final thoughts?
1: I'm very proud of UK that UK has been a leading voice uh, in support for Ukraine, and you back the voice up with action, it puts pressure on the United States. You were the first to deliver Western-made tanks, the first to deliver a longer-range precision weapon. The training that the uh, British Army has done, I mean, a remarkable number of Ukrainian troops already trained, and the Army sort of took it in stride. That's impressive to me. And of course, your American allies have high expectations of the Royal Air Force, the Royal Navy and the British Army,
0: but you've more than lived up to that. Ben Hodges, thank you very much. Thanks for the privilege. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at telegraph.co.uk slash latest or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces, follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it's released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it really helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. You can also contact us directly on Twitter. You'll find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we're especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Gemma Farrell.